Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixer, master engineer, and host of the Working Class Audio Podcast, Matt Boudreaux. First of all, Spotify is turning into Big Brother. There's a couple of patents, one that came from late last year and another one that was just granted. The first one is on personality tracking technology. So basically what it does is it makes a model of your five personality traits. These are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. The way they came about with those is they analyzed 17.6 million songs over 662,000 hours of music. This is with 5,800 listeners in the United States in three months only. So that's scary enough, but here's what puts it all into perspective. The latest patent is called Identification of Taste Attributes from an Audio Signal. And according to the patent, and I'm reading it now, it says it's a method for processing a provided audio signal that includes speech content and background noise. And then it says the reason for this is it's identifying playable content based on the processed audio signal content. So what that means is Spotify is listening to your voice, listening to you talking, and listening to your environment in order to figure out what songs you should be listening to. The reason for that is it doesn't feel that its current algorithm is precise enough. So it's going to use speech recognition to collect a whole lot more data. Now, this is kind of scary, isn't it? We're into new territory here where Spotify is not only giving you music, giving you audio, but it's also capturing your audio as well. So we're all worried about the government spying on us. But guess what? Spotify may get there first. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, a few podcasts ago, I was talking about the fact that a lot of audio and MI companies that we're used to may be bought out in the future. The reason why many of the founders are getting older and they want to retire, cash out, in some cases, they're just being taken over by bigger entities. Well, guess what? The shoe just dropped again as Native Instruments was acquired by a company called Francisco Partners out of San Francisco. Now, remember that Just about three years ago, Native Instruments actually got a $40 million cash infusion from a company called EH Partners. So the founders already cashed out a little bit, and now it looks like big time. The interesting thing here is that Francisco Partners is a big multinational private investment corporation. They've spent $20 billion on over 300 tech companies already. Thing about it is, none of them are in music. Now, the reason why this is being done, according to the company, is that they're trying to make an end-to-end system out of all the products that Native Instruments currently has. So this means things like Machine, Complete, Tractor, are all going to be one ecosystem eventually, let alone what they already have with Native Access, which is their subscription, and the Sounds.com audio library. Think about this for a second. Native Instruments started making plugins in 1996. So here we go, 24, 25 years later, and the company is bought by a multinational private investment fund. Is this the future of many more companies in our business? I think it is, especially the ones that lean towards tech. We're going to see more of these private investment funds reaching out and acquiring them as the founders of the audio companies and MI companies get older. I think we're even going to see the old hardware companies rolled up somewhat. As a result, we're still going to have the same amount of products, but there'll just be fewer and fewer companies that will be offering them. 
My guest this week is Matt Boudreau, who started as a drummer, experiencing six-figure record deals to eventually settling in behind the glass as a mixer and mastering engineer. Matt has since gone on to launch the hugely popular Working Class Audio podcast with more than 300 episodes under his belt. During our interview, we talked about the burden of owning a commercial studio, rebounding from a business loss, template mixing, starting the Working Class Audio podcast, and much more. I spoke with Matt via Zoom from his studio in Northern California. Let's start pretty much at the beginning. I know you were a drummer when you started, but tell me about starting in the music business. Sure. Um, I think my professional start to it would have been in Southern New Mexico in a small town called Las Cruces. Um, and it was there I met uh, my, my bandmates in school. We all went to school together. We uh, had a band called the Sextants, S-C-X-T-A-N-T-S, like the navigational instrument. Mm-hmm. And it was a trio. And we all went to high school together. And eventually when we graduated, we one by one, we all migrated out to San Francisco because we wanted to be rock stars. And uh, when we arrived in San Francisco, um, and actually before I get to that, many people had that I talked to before leaving Las Cruces, I'll never forget, you know, people telling me, oh, that's a one in a million chance. You'll never get a record deal. Nobody, nobody, you're not going to do that. Just stay here. And I, uh, of course, left and uh, my cohorts and I added a fourth to our group, uh, our singer sister. So we became a four piece, two guitars, bass and drums. And within two years of arriving, we had secured a record deal with Imago Records, which was a a new label run by uh, former uh, Chrysalis Records uh, record man, uh, Terry Ellis, and who managed Jethro Tull and signed Blondie and Pat Benatar. And so we were on this new label. It was distributed by BMG. Hugo Burnham, former drummer of Gang of Four, was our A&R. Uh, rep and uh, yeah, it was quite a ride. And unfortunately, the the record was not promoted properly. No offense to the Imago staff, but honestly, people just didn't do their job right. And um, where have I heard that one before? <laughs> yeah, that's never happened before. So uh, we were dropped. Um, we were asked to dump our manager at the time, which I was uh, all in favor of, but I was outvoted by my bandmates unfortunately and um who i love dearly but we just disagreed on that and uh so once we lost our record deal i decided to quit the band joined another band called seven day diary uh was quickly signed to reprise did a record with joe ciccarelli um then we were shifted to warner brothers did a record with gil norton so these are the days of analog tapes six-figure record deals five-figure um uh, video budgets, tour support, and, uh, you know, kind of in the van in a trailer kind of touring. And uh, eventually that band was dropped too. Uh, Seven Day Diary was dropped from Warner Brothers. And uh, I just was getting sick of that whole life as a drummer. And so I, I was asked to produce a record from a band around 1994 in San Francisco. And I got such a thrill doing that 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 enjoyment that came from that completely overtook me and i decided hmm i think i'm going to stick to this this audio thing is just really a a very attractive uh, idea to me as opposed to being a touring drummer well you know it's funny because that seems to be a common thread i know for me it was kind of the same thing i was a touring guitar player until i was about 40 and I was the musical director for a formerly famous British guitar player. And it was just such a horrible tour that at the end I thought, no, I just don't want to do this anymore. And in a way, it was the happiest day of my life. Because, you know, we all identify with being a musician, at least when we start. And that becomes a burden. So that burden was suddenly gone. I was able to concentrate just on being in the studio. I was anyway. I was there all the time. But not having to worry about my chops <laughs> was a good thing. Yeah. And the thrill that I got from that first record that I produced was hearing it on the radio at, it was played on college radio at, and uh, 
that was a thrill seeing it in record stores that was a thrill and it was just really on a local level that it was that you know this is coming this wasn't on a national level it was just within the bay area i was hearing it seeing it and i got a rush from that and that rush was far better than the rush that i got from playing live and touring so i i decided to pursue that path uh with much more vigor so what happened then well you know you're leading the life of a touring musician coming in and out of town and i got off tour record deals are gone and i i had kind of a an in and out you know touring musicians generally have a a job that they can come in and out of at home i find and i i was no different i was working for pro audio companies in the bay area which that of course was helping to fuel this this recording mindset so i was working for audio images uh which had been around for a long time and eventually went on to work for um cutting edge audio group and just kind of working in and out of pro audio sales working in where the warehouses um helping a bit with you know some tech support issues but eventually it, it all kind of came to a head uh when i was at cutting edge once again working with a great group of people that i just came to a disagreement with i realized that working in a warehouse in a pro audio shop was not going to be my path in life and i was at first i was promised a, a job um working with people's pro tool systems and helping them deal with their issues and i thought well that's that's cool i i'd like to do that and i went to go check in with my bosses about it and i said so what's up when when do i start and they said oh yeah we hired another guy to do that so you're going to just stay in the warehouse and i just said i'm out of here i'm done so i i talked to my wife about it at the time and she said you're miserable you should just try this recording thing and if you fall on your face well you know i've got a corporate job you know i'm not going to let us starve but i jumped into a studio in uh in the potrero hill area of san francisco and never looked back just kept going and you know it's all it's been a work in progress for <laughs> you know since since 94 but uh yeah i've 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 eked out a, a living in, in doing that. You've had some pretty good mentors. Care to talk about them? Uh, yeah, I've had a load of mentors. Uh, some, some don't even know they're my mentors. <laughs> uh, well, my, my first exposure to record making on a high level came from Larry Hirsch. Uh, Larry had worked with Los Lobos and John Hyatt uh, and Bonnie Raitt. Uh, Joe Ciccarelli, uh, definitely great, great inspiration to work with coming up. Uh, he produced seven day diary. He produced an EP for us. Uh, Gil Norton produced the seven day diary record that came out on Warner brothers and just watching all these guys work and how that process went. I wished I had paid attention in retrospect a lot closer than I, I did. I was, I was in the drummer mindset at the time and not in the engineer mindset, but looking back on those experiences, that really, kicked me in the butt but i mean gosh there's there's been a lot of inspiration since and i i get a lot of mentorship and inspiration uh from some friends of mine who are you know that are pretty high level people i mean vance powell andrew sheps you know I've become friends with chad blake and um did you know i went out and did the the chad's mix with the masters thing at one point and um all of that, you know, all those experiences, there's a little mentorship, I think, in all of, in all of these experiences that you have. You don't, I don't necessarily think you have to have a, a designated mentor or a set of mentors. I think that uh, the mentorship comes from the experience that, that you put yourself in uh, and you get out of it, you know, what you want. So were you working as a second in, in studios anywhere? No, and, and I, I look back at, well, and let me back up, actually. I, looking at a lot of people I've talked to who have come up as assistants and seconds in their, in their recording journey, they seem to, that seems to have worked for well for a lot of people. I was impatient. 
and I just wanted to jump in. I, I used to tell myself, I don't, I don't want to work my way up from the bottom cleaning toilets in studios. I'm in a helicopter in where I'm and drop myself in right in the middle of it. And, uh, you know, it was a little naive to say the least, but, uh, I just, I basically went freelance from the beginning and I worked at a small studio in San Francisco. Studio owner would pass me gigs, uh, you know, uh, shout out to my friend, buddy Salman, who ran that studio. He was a, an East coast kind of fast talking, no BS kind of guy. And he was, he was a mentor. He kicked my butt early on. And I learned a bit about, you know, just studio business and uh, how to conduct a session. And, you know, when you're young and you have a bunch of older guys showing up on a session going, you're the engineer, really? Because of your age, that was intimidating. And so that was, that was a big lesson. So I, I went from that studio to a, um, a studio co-op situation in Emeryville, California, uh, where myself and two other engineers would just share a space and contribute financially, contribute gear. And I kind of hit a, a point there where it was, it was actually the perfect setup. I was making money. I was, I had a lot of clients, was booked on a regular basis. And, you know, we're talking about local bands, no major label stuff, but local bands who paid you at the end of the session. So the, the cash flow was there, the records were getting done and it was good. It was, it was solid. But then I got, you know, illusions of grandeur and uh, my good friend, Michael Romanowski, mastering engineer came to me and he, he and I would have breakfast on a regular basis. And he said, Hey, so uh, I'm over at the coast recorders building, which for those listening who don't know, that's got a historical significance because it's tied to Bill Putnam. Mercury Records owned it at one point and Bill Putnam came in and uh, scooped it up and redid the live room. So everybody would always talk about the Bill Putnam room at Coast. And um, I joined Michael in a, in a co-lease type situation. He ran mastering in the front of the building. I ran the studio in the back. And uh, I thought, this is it, man. This is where it's all, this is where it's going to grow right here. And it, it, it did grow to some degree. There was, you know, there was some, some cool sessions and, uh, and it was definitely an education, but, you know, quite honestly, it kicked me in the butt. I didn't know what I was doing very, very, you know, regarding business at the time. I, I kind of like rose to my level of incompetence, really. I just kind of, I got to a point where I was like, yeah, I know how to make a record, but I really don't know how to market the studio. And it was at the beginning of, um, of the uh, financial collapse in two, around 2007. And it just progressively got more difficult. The parking disappeared uh, because Twitter, Twitter was moving in behind us and uh, there was some other building going, going on around us. And so uh, not a great neighborhood, bad parking, financial crisis, bad decision-making on my part. And uh, by the end of, um, by about, I, th I think about 2011, towards the end of it, I came to Michael and I said, you know what? I know the lease is coming up for renewal, but I got to get out. I'm bouncing checks to the landlord. I'm not saving any money. I'm, I had basically taken the great situation in Emeryville and destroyed it. It was just, there was, the operation was not going as it should be. And I came to him because I said, it, it's causing great tension in my marriage. I've got two kids. Uh, I just cannot renew this lease. I need your help. And he said, family comes first. Let's figure it out. And so we, um, we got me off the lease. We got a friend of ours to come in and take over. And uh, I began what essentially was the, the, the start of the working class audio mindset and the podcast that would follow and kind of my um, Phoenix rising moment, I, I guess you, you might say at that time. Well, I want to get to working class audio, but let's talk more about what you're doing in the studio. Does that mean that at that point you moved into your house or something similar? That's exactly what happened. I got out, uh, went home with my tail between my legs and I was thinking, okay, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to do this? So I began to sell off gear that I didn't need. 
and return gear to people that I had borrowed. You know, uh, I had a lot of support and a lot of people wanted to help me, but I had to return all that stuff because you just can't squeeze it all into a house. And uh, I just began to change my uh, expectations and my mindset. I just said, well, okay, well, why don't you start focusing on mixing and mastering at home, track at other Bay Area studios when you need that infrastructure and uh, pare it down. And I just kept selling gear left and right, paring it down, refining the process. Um, and uh, that's, that's pretty much how it went. And so business started to pick up and um, I had to take on some other, other gigs. Uh, I was doing a live karaoke gig as a drummer um, for a period of time. I worked for Lyft. Uh, it was it was a good lesson in humility and it was a good lesson in what I didn't want to do, how I did not want my life to run. Uh, and so, you know, fast forward a little bit, well, fast forward several years I, and, and we can come back to it, but long story short, I took all the lessons that I learned and applied them and really just put my nose to the grindstone to make sure that, uh, I wasn't going to be struggling financially that I could do the audio work that I wanted to do and kind of ensure myself by, uh, from failure, from financial failure by using diversification as the, uh, the anchor point, you know, multiple income streams so that there's, um, always something going on, always money coming in and that, solves the financial thing, but it also solves, you know, any level of ADD that I may or may not have, uh, because I've always got something cool happening. So that's, that's, you know, the, all of it in a nutshell. Yeah. I know how that works, especially the ADD part. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're all in that boat to some degree, if you're in this business where probably you have multiple things going on at the same time, only because you get bored otherwise. I mean, sometimes it's out of need, but most of the time I think it's out of boredom. Yeah. Or potential boredom. Yeah, it works It works well for me. The one thing I really like from your story is the fact that you were able to rise above the difficulty where so many in our business, once they leave or partially leave or have a foot out the door, they don't come back. And it's only those of us who manage to go through that and absorb it, absorb the punches, so to speak, and keep going. Then when you come out the other side, I think you're all the much better for it on many levels. Yeah, I I think that that's my advice to a lot of people who may or may, you know, who who are struggling is, you know what, figure it out. Don't, don't quit. If you really love it, don't quit. Um, And I'm stubborn. You know, if I have a barrier in front of me, uh, I will go over it, around it. I will figure it out. And one one thing I, I want to point out that um, really, really helped also was uh, my involvement in what many people call a mastermind group, where every Friday morning I get up for a 6 a.m. call and I join a group of guys from around uh, the world. I say the world because there's some in... England, some in Canada, and we all talk about our various businesses and advise each other, egg each other on. It's it's kind of an accountability group. Hey, you know, you said last week you were going to work on this. Why didn't why didn't you finish that? What's is there a problem? Oh, yeah, I did say that. Okay, hmm, let me get on that. So that's that's been helpful. Was that from a particular? Um management guru no actually that came from a guest on my on on my podcast uh lid shaw actually oh i know lid sure yeah lid and i hit it off uh like brothers he started to call me my brother from another podcast and uh he invited me to this group met all these people that i've never seen in my life and eventually met in in person through the various trade shows and uh, eventually went to Nashville and stayed at Lidge's house for summer NAM one time and met all the rest of the guys. And yeah, that's, that's where that came from. It's just somebody who 
we had some common common ground and uh i don't know what would have happened had he not invited me to that a lot a lot of great things have come come about from that as a result i've been in a number of those things and i have to say that some of the best friends of my life till this day came through that and just that alone forget about everything else just that alone was worth the time that i spent yeah i mean even my wife was like uh she observed she said you know i've i've you've been at this for a while now and i really think it's helped i think it's made a big difference for you and she said plus you get up at the crack of dawn on a friday morning with such great enthusiasm so it's i look forward to it it's it's something every friday that i know i'm going to do and i have done for several years that consistency uh, really helps i think i remember lidge referring to that somewhere along the line in our conversations i haven't talked to him in a while but i, I seem to remember somewhere well, and he and I have actually, as of today of this recording, he and I have started another one with just the two of us where we meet on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. Of course, it's later for him. He gets the better into that deal. And we, um, once again, accountability. Uh, we talk about, you know, podcast stuff and give each other ideas. And it's to kind of, you know, segment off a little bit from our, our primary group. Excuse me. But it's... I advise that for anybody, just uh, meeting, meeting your peers and spending your time in those situations where instead of, you know, doom scrolling on Facebook for hours on end, getting together and spending your time with like-minded people who are going to push you to do your best, no matter what it is, no matter what industry you're in. And, um, you know, you spend enough time doing that, it's going to lead you to other things that are going to occupy your time that are going to help you, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's come back to the studio for a second. So do you find yourself mostly mixing and mastering? I do. I, I used to, when I did have a studio or studios in the past, I spent more of my time tracking, overdubbing, and then, you know, mixing at the end of the project. But now that's fallen off considerably um, for a number of reasons uh, because a, I don't have a regular studio. So when clients talk to me and they say, Oh, okay, we got to go to another studio. Okay. Well, actually we're going to use the house engineer there and then we'll bring it back to you to mix. I got into mastering a few years ago, uh, kind of he hesitant to do it at the time because I had been, you know, brought up around and spent an enormous amount of time Enormous amount, an enormous amount of time, excuse me, around really great mastering engineers, uh, Michael Romanowski, Ken Lee, Paul Stubblebine, and uh, John Greenham. And when you spend time around those guys, uh, you get kind of um, intimidated to think, well, I, well, I'm just going to stick to being just a straight up engineer. But over time, you know, people would come to me, I'd master something and you know, I wouldn't advertise it. I'd just say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And it just, it kept snowballing. People kept bringing me stuff. Hey, we really like what you're doing with this. Can you, can you work with us? And so I just said one day, fine, I'm going to master and mix. Not necessarily together, but, you know, independently of one another. I ask this of everybody that does mastering. When did you get to the point where you felt, oh, I got this. I feel very comfortable doing it. That's a good question. Boy, you know, I would say mm, probably about a year ago, honestly, I just kind of hit a point where I, like I'd hear something and I'd go, okay, I already know the problems that this has. My trepidation, even to this day comes when, not when I'm sending the, the master to the client for them to approve. I just have some like um, superstition about for those that are going to do CDs, when I send a DDP file to someplace, I just have this like fear that it's going to explode like a message on Mission Impossible on the other end. And I, and I get scared and I think, please, you know, please don't blow up. Please just stay, stay together. Don't, I don't want CDs showing up with some, you know, something that went wrong in that process, but it never has. And it's really, it's an unfounded fear, but you know, I guess if I'm going to get fearful about anything, that, that that's okay. 
but yeah, I, I feel much more confident in, in mastering now than I did. And I think that there's, I think others who know what to do would get into mastering, but I think for a long time, I had a lot of fear that, well, you know, I don't have, you know, the $5,000 box here and the $10,000 box here and the $100,000 set of speakers. And I just started to um, lose my fear of that because the results were making the clients happy. And I've always been kind of a, I don't care, you know, what kind of stove or pots and pans you have, as long as the meal tastes good, that's what's important. Out of curiosity, what speakers are you using for mastering? I've got Amphion 118s, and I love them. I've got a small room, and for a while I had some Klein and Hummel 0300s. And Klein and Hummel, for for those that don't know, were eventually bought by Sennheiser, who owns Neumann, and rebranded as Neumann, I think, 0310s or something. I had those in this room because they were a, a holdover from my previous studio and they were just too big for the room. So I tried the Amphians and fell in love with them and, and immediately could hear like, oh yeah, th these work for this room. You can hear it in the, in the bottom end. And, you know, between that and some Odyssey, the uh, LCD XCs and just some common sense, you know, testing in the car, testing on consumer stuff. I, I feel great confidence in what I send out to people. I have 118s too. Oh, you do? Yeah. Fantastic speakers. Yeah, I got turned on to them by a friend. I was uh, producing a record. When I produce, I don't engineer. I, I usually have somebody else engineer. And we were doing it at, at his studio, and he had two 18s. And I just fell in love with them. They were so good. I, it's like, well, okay, I think I'm sold. <laughs> And I got the whole setup with the amplifier and, and the speaker cable and everything, but I'm happy that I did. As did I. Got that, that fancy speaker cable, and uh, I chose the higher power amp to, to couple with these. Me too. I had the lower power one, and then I said, you know, these sound great, but can I hear the higher power amp? And they sent it out, and immediately I was like, yeah, this is the way to go. And I actually just sold my NS10s. Uh, I had NS10M studios for, I don't know, for a long time. And I got rid of them. I got um, the Reftone 2LDs. And uh, I put those with my old uh, Yamaha, what is it, P2200 or 22 something, you know, way overpowered amp for these speakers. But gosh, they sound good. Power is the secret. It really is. Power and headroom. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about mixing for a second. Do you have any favorite mixing tricks that you use pretty regularly? Well, I'll tell you something, and this relates to uh, an episode of yours, the Billy Decker episode. So I've interviewed Billy, and I, you know, I was initially attracted to his story of mixing in such a short period of time. And you know, got influenced by that, but then I didn't know what to do. But then he was on your show recently talking more about it. And I found out about his, his book, uh, that's coming out. I, I think you can, no, no, it's out. You can get it. I bought it. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. It's on Amazon. Their publisher sent me an advanced copy and I sat down and I methodically, I never do this, but I did it with this. Cause I was, I was just so curious. I sat with my iPad with the book on it in uh, on one part of the couch. Imagine me sitting in my living room watching TV. Uh, in fact, watching episode, uh, watching uh, The West Wing on Netflix, episode after episode. And I've got Billy's book, and I've got my laptop remote controlling my other laptop in my my control room. And I methodically went through that book, plug in by plug in track by track, and I completely modeled his, his uh, template. And I've done that before for Andrew Sheps and got pretty good results, I would say, with Andrews. There was a few things I didn't understand and didn't bother to call him up and say, hey, what, what are you doing here? I, I just didn't want to hassle him. But with Billy's, I just I read that book, put it into practice, and I took three mixes that I had just sent to a client. 
And I listen to those mixes, you know, with that kind of uh, distance after having sent them and having been away from, from them for a while. And they weren't approved mixes yet either. And I listened to them and I was like, Ooh, I don't know about those. And I ran them through Billy's template, you know, took a little bit of time, like about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to kind of go, well, uh, that's not working. Hmm. I wonder why that's not working. Oh, here's the problem. Figured it out. Redid all those mixes in a matter of, like Billy says, like 45 minutes. And I sent the, the mixes to the client and the client emails me back. He goes, I don't know what you did, but these sound a hundred times better than what you initially sent me. You can check this one off your list, this one off your list. I've got a question about this one on the vocal. There's a line, blah, 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 you know, tweak. And I started to just take old mixes and run them through this template and really just kind of put it through its paces. and would sit back and just go, wow, okay. I wouldn't have made a lot of these choices that he's making. Some things just don't seem right to me or just stylistically, I wouldn't have made this, these decisions. But I'll tell you something, Bobby, that thing works. These mixes sound big. They sound commercial and uh, bombastic in a, in a great way. And, you know, I've made a couple modifications, of course, like anybody would, but that's, that's my favorite trick as of late is, you know, get Billy's book and, and give it a shot. You know, it may not work for everybody and it's certainly not going to work for all forms of music, but you know, being a two guitar drum two you know, two guitars, bass and drums kind of, kind of guy, that's my jam right now is, is Billy's template. You know, it's funny. I've been promising myself that I'm going to do it and I just haven't had the time to, to spend with it that I feel I'd need to have maybe over the holidays. I have to say, though, I had the same conclusion in many cases. I'd be looking at what he would do here or there, and a lot of times it made perfect sense. I go, oh, yeah, okay, that's cool. And then there'd be some I'd be scratching my head on thinking, oh, why did he do that? I know. But on the other hand, you know he's gotten results, and obviously it worked for you. I think that he did a record, you know, I'm not like a huge country music fan or anything, but there's some records out there that, that I hear that I I'm attracted to. He did a record by this uh, band. I think they're from North Carolina called Parmalee. And I think the name of the album, I'm going to say it was Carolina. I may be wrong, but I heard those mixes around the time that I interviewed him some, sometime in the past. And I was, I was just like struck at how spacious and punchy, that they were and you know, all the, all the words we used to describe a mix. And then to learn that he does those kind of mixes fast and in the box on an old pro tool system. It's like, what is going on here? How does this guy do this? And you know, that's, I think that's part of his secret is he's got a great template going and years of experience doing it. He's pretty open about the whole thing too. He definitely is. He's, he's very, uh, you know, it's like David Copperfield, you know, opening up, you know, his bag of tricks and go, this is how I, this is how I make the jet disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a thing. I love that. I love that he's open about it because as he said, you know, I'm not Billy. I don't have his ears. He doesn't have my ears and I'm going to get di completely different results than he does, but the results I'm getting are working for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick to it for a while and see where it takes me. It's pretty much the same responses that I was getting when I first did the, the first edition of the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, and I went and I interviewed all the, the engineers that I knew, they were all top people, and they'd be very open about what they're doing. And I would say, are you sure you want to give that away? And the overwhelming response to that was, well, nobody can do it like me anyway, <laughs> which is kind of true. Yeah. But you and Billy could take the same songs, run it through the same template, and it would still sound different, I'm sure. Yeah. But I, I found that in spite of the fact that I primarily like to work in the rock genre, I mean, there's so many, there's so many commonalities between modern country and, and rock anyway, that even if we were to work on the same song as you say, you know, yeah, I would come up with completely different results and make different decisions about the balance than he would. Let's talk about working class audio. Okay. How did that start? Well, as I mentioned in, in my previous studio, my last studio, um, 
that was an ass kicking experience. And it really, it rattled me in a big way. And I had all these questions. I thought, well, how are other people doing this? Why am I failing at this? Why, why can't I do this? And I thought, wow, I really want to ask questions of people. And I want to talk about my experience of changing my, my mindset about business and how to handle audio and not get yourself in debt. And all, there was just all these themes swirling around. And I literally, I said it out loud to myself. I was like, I've got to come up with like a more, I don't know, like a working class audio kind of way of doing this. And I just, I kind of stopped and thought, well, that's a great title. Hmm. Maybe I should do a blog. Quickly found out I hated doing blog work, (laughs) writing, not really good at it, but Many, many years ago in my Emeryville studio, uh, when podcasting first became a thing that you could do, I was listening to, um, God, what's his name? Adam from, who is a VJ on MTV. Oh yeah. Right. Adam Curry. Yeah. Adam Curry was doing a podcast and I was just to kind of take you back and I'll bring it back to the working class audio thing, but he was doing these podcasts and I would imagine like him being in this cottage, he was living in England for a period of time, I think. And he was using like an I river recorder or something. And he was, you know, at the time when the internet was really still in its infancy and I was captivated by it. So I tried a thing called the broken radio podcast. It was based around my studio in Emeryville and I would interview local musicians. I probably did like six or seven episodes. And then I was like, I'm done with this. This is, I don't see the point. And I stopped. So when I got sick of trying to write for working class audio as a blog, I realized I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to go back and do that podcast thing. Yeah. And I'll just interview other engineers. So I just started to reach out to various engineers and the early ones, you know, um, like Vance and Andrew were like, you know, they were friends. So they were like, yeah, yeah, I'll be on your podcast. Sure. And I got a phone call. Um, and I don't know if he'd remember this, but there, there's a guy out there named Chevy Shevlin. And I think Chevy worked for, um, for Pensado's place at the time or had some connection to it. I'm not sure what his connection was to it, to be honest, but he called me. I don't know how he got my number, but he called me randomly and he said, you don't know me. I work for Pensado. Um, I think what you're doing is really special. And I think you need to think about some sponsorship opportunities for yourself uh, because what you're doing is different. You're not talking about gear. You're talking about people's journeys and all the things that nobody else talks about and, or comes close to um, with, you know, you're probably the closest person, Bobby, who, who does it, who gets into other stuff besides just the gear. And I said, okay, well, thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that into consideration. And I called a friend of mine who does um, business development. And I said, hey, I just got this call, this guy, he says this. And my friend who's an old friend who's, who's been very dear to me over the years said, absolutely, let's kick it into gear. And I said, okay, what do we do? And he said, well, let me go talk to my friend, Lisa, who is the CEO of Twit TV, This Week in Tech. Her husband is Leo Laporte. They're up in Petaluma where, I, where my friend was at. And long story short, he met with Lisa. He comes back to me and he says, Lisa says, if you want to do this, you got to do this, 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 and this. That included a weekly show. You got to put sales deck together for potential sponsors to let them know what thing, what, you know, what you're offering. I followed their directions to the letter and uh, we picked up uh, the first, the first sponsor technically was gear sluts. Cause I called initially, I called um, Jules at gear sluts. Cause he's an old friend. And I, and I thought, well, Jules knows something about banner ads. Hmm. Let me see if Jules will give me some advice. Jules uh, then gets, he, he sends me a message back. He says, I need you to get on Skype right now. So we get on Skype and he goes, let me tell you something. I listen to a ton of podcasts. This is a fantastic show. I want to be a part of it. Let's do a deal. No money deal. Let's just trade. You promote gear sets. I'll promote working class audio. And I was, I was nobody. So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. Sure. So Jules comes on board. We get the sales deck together. 
Audio Technica comes on board. The audience is growing quickly. And I'm just kind of in shock because I think, well, this is going a different way than I had expected. Um, okay, let's see what happens. And it just continued to grow. The audience continued to grow. The sponsors continued to come in. The podcast was paying for itself. And it was also kind of shaping the narrative for me. I was like, okay, I've got to follow the advice that I'm being given. And then I'm telling people. And that in turn started to shift my life drastically. My uh, home life improved. My business improved. My uh, Everything improved around me. It was, it was really remarkable. So to this day, um, as of this, I think I'm at 311 episodes, 312, and uh, still going every Monday. I've never missed an episode. And it's been a, a great experience. It's opened a lot of doors. It's introduced me to a ton of people, and uh, including you. Uh, you've been an inspiration to me because I listen to your show. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. Well, likewise, I really enjoy your show. I don't have a lot of time to listen to podcasts. I wish I had more, but I make an exception for yours. You're a really good interviewer. Thank you. You know, that doesn't come easily from the standpoint that I've been on, on shows and I've been interviewed where people will have a list of questions and they're not going to vary from them no matter what. To me, that's not a conversation. You know, you, you have to go where the conversation is, is moving and that's when it becomes fun. I think subconsciously you influence me because I don't write my questions down. I just go at it and say, Hmm, I know that there's some things I want to know about this person, but it's given me the confidence to just jump in with anybody and just start asking questions. I have a list of bullet points and I don't often get through them all, but I know where I want to go. Many times it just goes in a different direction. That's more fun. You know, that's better, unexpected. I think I've told you this before, and I'll tell you this again. I was with uh, my friend Pete Dell, mastering engineer. Oh, yeah. Know him well. Pete and I were out at a dinner together, and uh, I went to the bathroom. As I was coming out of the bathroom, you were sitting at a table with a group of people, and I had been listening to your show, and I was, I was a little starstruck, Bobby. I was like, holy shit, that's Bobby Osinski. And Pete walks by, and he goes, what's up? I said, that's Bobby Osinski. He goes, oh, yeah, that is Bobby. And he just went to the bathroom and I was left there kind of like, should I bother? No, I'm not going to bother. him. So I didn't bother you. And I went back to my table and Pete eventually came back to the bathroom and we, we finished up our dinner with our, our crew of people. And you were a, a big influence on me early on. I will, and still are. So kudos to you and your show. You know, I have to say my show came about completely differently than yours. I was on, and I still am on another podcast. I think it's the oldest audio podcast going, and it's Audio Nowcast, run by Mike Rodriguez. I was on episode 97 as a guest, and then they asked me to stay on as a panel member. I don't hit all of them, but I hear, I hit most of them, and it's a very diverse group of people. But somewhere along the line, there was a listener that reached out to me and said, you know, you should have your own podcast. And I went, ah, I don't have the time for another project. I don't think so. And he said, look, you just do the interviews and I'll do the rest. This is what I do. I set a podcast for people. So I said, okay. And that's kind of how it started. But right from the beginning, my whole idea was I don't want sponsors. This is branding, strictly branding for me. Now, I definitely want to have guests and I want to talk to them. I want to find out more about them and I want to promote them but I'm going to stay away from sponsors and I still do for better, or for worse. Part of me thinks, well, you know, maybe some sponsors wouldn't be so bad, but on the other hand, you know, it's worked so far for what I needed. I definitely early on made a conscious decision to not bring on products or companies that I don't personally believe in. Mm, yeah. Uh, because I know that the temptation is to go, well, Hey, all these people want to give me money. Uh, sure, I'll just take on anybody. But I, I just said, no, it's got to be something that I use, that I, I believe in. And case in point, Reverb.com is a sponsor. But I've been using Reverb for a number of years. In fact, in my struggling years post-studio, I sold so much of my gear on Reverb with great results. So it's, it's, it has to be a situation like that for me to have a sponsor on. And, you know, I mean, there's only so much room in a podcast, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to choose very carefully. 
Last question, Matt. What uh, You know what this is probably because you listen to my podcast. What's, what's the best business advice I can give? That's it. Diversify. If that is just to me, the name of the game. I know that for a lot of us, our, our passion, you know, just speaking in terms of like music, let's just keep it boiled down to music. A lot of us want to be music producers, engineers, et cetera. Along the way, it will behoove you to bring in income from other sources. And if that happens to be doing audio books or audio cleanup or some other form of audio, fine. If it has to be um, work with an audio company, great. If it's got, if you've got to go do a thing at Starbucks temporarily, or even not even temporarily, if you just got to bring in income from multiple streams, you remove the single point of failure in your equation. And it insulates you a bit And this pandemic has really been proof to me that those that I know, including myself who have done this have kind of protected themselves from uh, loss of income. So I can expound on that or, or not, but diversification essentially, I think is the name of the game. You can find out more about Matt at mattboudreau.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Boudreau, B-O-U-D-R-E-A-U, all one word, dot com. You can also find out about the Working Class Audio podcast at Working Class Audio, all one word, workingclassaudio.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>